Hey, this series started with a single sermon I preached back in May and ultimately became the series that we're in right now. But in that message, it was called Reasons Versus Purpose. And we said there are two ways to live your life. You can either live your life in a dark place looking for the reasons why bad things happen. But we said that in a broken world with flawed people, bad things that happen are going to have bad reasons. And we said the reasons are not going to make us happy. And more than that, they're not going to take us anywhere. So we said we can either live our lives looking for the reasons why bad things happen and live an unhappy life, or we can understand the power of God, who even in the midst of our difficult circumstances can manually override the reasons and can inject purpose into our lives. And we said we can live our lives asking, why did this go wrong? Or what now? What does God want to do now? And we're in the fourth or the fifth week of the series, but I want to talk now about maybe a little bit more fundamental or foundational point, because if you're like in a particular situation, you're saying, okay, I'm not going to ask why the reasons, what the reasons are. I'm going to ask what God, what's God's purpose in my marriage or in my career or something. That's kind of an individual isolated situation. And that, that deserves exploration. But today, we're going to take a step backward, and we're going to look at the big picture. The reason I do that, I think, I think we live in a purpose-starved world. In fact, at New Spring, we have a ministry called Starting Point, and it's for seeker starters and returners. It's just a great kind of living room environment where people are allowed to explore faith, whether they don't have faith yet, or they're coming back to their faith, or they're just trying to figure out what they believe. I would love to be part of a starting point. The only problem is they happen during the services, so I can never be part of one. But in starting point, one of the questions that's posed to the people who are there for discussing is, if you could ask God any question you would like to ask, what would that question be? You know, I was surprised to find out that on almost every starting point that asks this question, the question that people would ask God is, what is my purpose? What am I here on the earth for? Not, not what's the purpose in the specific situation, but what's my purpose? Before the four o'clock service yesterday, I was watching an old video of Billy Graham preaching, and Billy Graham had been talking to the president of Harvard, and he asked the president of Harvard, what's the number one need on the Harvard campus? And the, pres the, the then president at Harvard said, I just think people are looking for purpose. They want to know what their purpose is. Well, there's a reason why you and I live in a purpose-starved world, and that's because we've been trained not to have purpose. Well, let me explain what I mean by that. You and I have been culturally trained all of our lives to become atheists. That is the prevailing theology of our culture. We're, we're trained either to be real atheists or, or theological atheists, or we're trained at least to become practical atheists. Well, let's just start. Hey, I went to public education all my years. Love public education. Love public educators. But I got to be honest with you. From the second grade on, I was taught that I exist because of random rolls of the cosmic dice. I was taught that I was an accident. That there, I mean, it wasn't like I was taught that there was no God. It was just that God was never part. It was God was never a useful hypothesis. You know, I will tell you this, I felt conflicted. I still remember being in, in advanced biology in the 10th grade, and I remember, and this was in 1972, so it's been a long time ago. It hadn't been that long since Watson and Crick had come up with DNA, or at least the discovery of DNA. But I remember, you know, listening to all the lectures on evolution. At the same time, the, I remember my teacher saying, okay, today we're going to talk about DNA and RNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, ribonucleic acid. And I learned that I have 30 trillion cells in my body, all of them having all of the encoding for every part of my existence. And I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't sound like random rolls of the cosmic dice, does it? But in any event, I, I was taught all the way through that I exist as 
A, as an accident, separate and apart from any idea. We can't talk about God. That's for theology. He's not really part of our discussion. Well, that was in 1972. I'm telling you the world that we live in in 2017. God forbid that any coach should lead her team in a prayer before a game. Because the next thing you know, everybody's going to be raising screaming bloody murder that the Constitution's been violated. Well, it hasn't been violated, but that's just the world that we live in. The issue is not legal. The issue is anti-God. We are trained, we're being trained culturally to become atheists. You know, don't you feel the disconnect? I mean, because here's the thing. As I said a moment ago, God forbid that a coach or a teacher or anyone else should lead in prayer or sing Christmas songs because we can't have God as part of our public life. But you let a hurricane come like we experienced in Florida last week, and those same leaders will be asking everybody, would you please pray for the people in Florida? I mean, do we as Americans at any point wake up and say, this is insane? Definitely, even if a person, you know, if you were here today and you're part of the Freedom From Religion group, you would still have to admit that it's certainly contradictory. But it isn't just that. I mean, I think practically, in very tacit kinds of ways, we are trained to become atheists. I mean, when you watch television, you see people get into relationships, make decisions, and this and that. Is God ever part of those decisions? I mean, you like turn on, turn on network television, and I'm going to watch the new shows here for the fall in 2017. And like, okay, yeah, these are a couple. They're praying about whether or not it's God's will for them to be in a relationship. Do you see that on television? I don't. I go to the movies. Interesting stories. See the players, they're doing stuff, they're blowing up buildings, you know, getting in car chases, getting in relationships. I don't, I don't hear anything about God. God's, see, in our culture today, God is not a useful hypothesis. We are being culturally trained to become atheists. But there's a problem with atheism. I mean, it was very apparent. I mean, I was reading some of Darwin's work yesterday. There was a problem that showed up early on, even in the 19th century. And by the way, Darwin, you know, a lot of people credit origin of the species as being this cultural force that changed everything. All Darwin did was synthesize some of the thoughts that were already out there. But, you know, when it came to honest-to-God atheists who who were real about what they believed, they had to deal with something. And here it is. There was a problem with atheism. I mean, there was like a plus to atheism. If there's no God, then I won't have to worry about the future. I don't have to worry about judgment. I can sleep with anybody I want to sleep with. If I have to, like, cut a corner and burn you in order to make money myself, why am I worried about ethics? It's really nice not to have a God. There was a plus. The plus was no God. And by the way, atheism was always a matter of philosophy, never science. But there was a minus to it. And and work with me through this construct. If there's no God, then there's no such thing as good. Hey, I have a debate, I have a background in debate, and I love doing it. I love doing it when I was in high school and college, love doing it today. Here's the one thing I know. If if you believe that there is no God, you cannot prove good to me. There is no way in the world you can prove to me that Mother Teresa's life was superior to Adolf Hitler's life. You can give me some cultural viewpoints, but you can't prove it. Because if there is no God, there is no standard of right and wrong. In fact, you know what? If you were to take the concept of survival of the fittest, one might be able to argue the opposites. Hitler certainly tried it. If there is no God, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no order. If there is no order, there is no purpose. I promise you, game, set, match. 
And therein lay the minus of atheism. There was a, a positive, you don't, there was no God. You don't have to worry about the afterlife. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine there's, you know, like Lennon's song. There's the plus, there's no God. But the minus is no purpose. So in the middle part of the 19th century, a philosophy came to be. By the way, my heart goes out to all of you who are in philosophy class or ever have been in philosophy class. I mean, isn't philosophy class the most horrific thing? I mean, really, when you get right down to it, there's probably only two or three belief systems. But in philosophy, there's like a million philosophies because somebody comes along, adds his nuance to a philosophy that's already existing. He gets his name and an ism, and you have to remember it for a test. <laughs> I hate philosophy. But here's the thing. I want to talk to you about one philosophy, because, and I don't even want to use this word because it's too big, and it's the kind of word that makes me zone out. But imagine that there was a philosophy that was so pervasive that it explains the craziness in our world today. I mean, don't you ever wonder how people think in such crazy, self-contradictory terms? I mean, don't you find people's lives so, so, don't you find so much cognitive dissonance in what they say and do? What if, I could, what if I could show you a word that is so big that it could explain the craziness of our times? Okay, here's the word, existentialism. Now, at first blush, you could say, well, okay, Mark, that's just a school of thought. No, no. existentialism is more than that. Exist ultimately, philosophy is a way of looking at reality. And here's the problem with the existentialism. But what was proposed is a benefit at first. Existentialism solved the problem that the atheist had. The plus of having no God, but the minus of having no purpose. The existentialists came along and they said, okay, there is no God, but human beings are superior to all other life forms or beings or entities. What makes a human being superior to a blade of grass or a squirrel or a can of Drano is that human beings had the capability of becoming self-aware. And the existentialist said, we're going to get this atheist problem away from a plus and a minus and two plus. We're going to get it to two pluses. And here's how it's going to work. Now, there, there, there's seven basic terms that frame existentialism, but there's one overarching, and this is, this is it. The existentialist said, it's true that there is no God, but since we are superior beings, at the moment we become self-aware, we determine what our purpose is. How cool is that? No God, but I can determine my purpose. So somehow I have found a way to say, there's not a God, but I do have purpose. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that, that's our world. Because to the existentialist, see, what is right for me may not be right for you. What is wrong for me may not be wrong for you. And here's the big one. What is truth for me may not be truth for you. See, existentialism is as new as postmodernism, and it's as old as the Garden of Eden when Satan came along and said to our first parents, hey, you know what? You can do what you want to do if you eat the tree. You can break out of God's, and you can, you, you can be your own God. So really, even though existentialism, you know, pretty much goes back to Jean-Paul Sartre and, and, and some of those others, but really it's a school of thought that's as old as the Garden of Eden, and it's as new as postmodernism, which says there is no such thing as objective truth. But there are huge problems with existentialism. 
I mean, and the reason why I want to go here today, I mean, I, honestly, it's not, it's not my gig to, to take time and talk about something like this at New Spring, but I just want you to know this, this is what is coloring our whole culture. It's, what's, it's what colors our entertainment. It's what colors our politics. And what scares the life out of me is it's gotten into the groundwater of the church. And a whole new kind of Christianity has been invented. The kind of Christianity that says, I am in the process of developing my purpose, so I'm going to check into church and see if God would like to like join me in developing my purpose. I mean, honestly, a lot of the Christian books I hear, a lot of the sermons I hear, like, and I'm like, do we understand that is not at all Christianity? This idea, I can define my own purpose. Well, here's the, here's the reason why I know it's not Christianity is it's fundamentally flawed. It's got five fundamental flaws. And those fundamental flaws lead to conditions that I think you're going to recognize in our culture. Here's the first problem with existentialism. If there is no God and I'm making up my own purpose, I have to admit the fact that I come from meaninglessness and I'm going to meaninglessness. But on this island of this brief time, 30, 40, 50, 70, 80 years, I have purpose, which means this. Here's my first problem if I'm an existentialist. All I have is this moment. And the past doesn't matter, future doesn't matter, all I have is this moment. Well, I don't know about you, but if you'll just extrapolate that, I mean, it goes right into anxiety. If all I have is this moment, I have the pressure of figuring out what my life is all about, and yet I'm dealing with all these difficulties of a flawed, broken world. Well, the second problem of existentialism is what happens if we, if we fail to live up to our purpose? I got these out of order, but I'll get back to that second one in just a minute. What happens if we fail to live up with our self-ordained purpose? I make up a purpose for myself, but I can't live up to it. Well, I get into self-hatred, maybe even self-destruction. Let's go back to the one that I missed. Who or what validates my purpose? If I come from nothing and I'm going to nothing and I like the idea that there's no God, but I'm making it my own purpose, how am I going to find out if I was right? What source am I going to look to to say, you're right. That's why in our world today, people say, well, this is right for me or this is right for you because consequently there's no validating power. Well, that would lead to no sense of security, wouldn't it? Let me give you the fourth problem. What happens if we change our definition of purpose? <laughs> I got to be honest with you. I mean, my idea of my purpose when I was eight <laughs> was not my idea of what my purpose was when I was 17. <laughs> and my idea of purpose at 17 was not my idea of purpose when I was 27 and was married and had two kids. And my idea of purpose when I was 27 years old was not my idea of purpose when I turned 50. You see what I'm saying? What happens, what happens if we change our idea of purpose? You know what happens? Let me tell you the condition. We wind up as hypocrites in the religion that we've made up. But here's the big one. If I come from meaninglessness and I'm going to meaninglessness, my problem is my life doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't really matter. I can pretend it matters for this brief time that I'm on the island. You know, people say, well, Mark, I'm going to be remembered for the life that I live. Let me ask you a question. Now, how, how much do you remember of your great, 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 great grandmother? Not much, right? Because life has a way of passing on. So consequently, if we come from meaninglessness and we're going to meaninglessness, then we can make up all kinds of ideas as to what our purpose is, but it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Because here is the thing. 
When it comes to purpose, you can either make it up or God can hand it down. That's it. It's as simple as that. You can either make it up or God can hand it down. You know what? I don't think any objective person, regardless of her or his worldview, I don't think any objective person could seriously believe the idea that there's no God, but I make up my own purpose. I'd give a dollar if all of you could be part of a conversation I was part of some time back. Or if I had it on video, I'd love to show it to you. It's just a really interesting conversation. I have a couple of friends who are non-theists. And uh, we're buddies, and we go to lunch together, and we've just got to be good friends for the years. I met them when they were at the university, and they're in their careers now, but they, they lead a non-theist organization. And uh, so I got a call from one of my friends. He said, hey, Pastor, it's been a while since we've gone to lunch. Let's go to lunch and talk. And so we were over here at the waterfront talking, and they were talking about the difficulties that they have leading a non-theist organization and recruiting members in a postmodern world. And they said, you know, we, we, we tell people, hey, we would love to have you come to our meetings. And, and these are not people coming from a theological perspective, but they're just saying, young, these are young adults saying, how can you know anything for sure? And was, this is what's really weird. This is like an out-of-body experience. Here I am. I am a Bible-believing pastor sitting across from two friends who are non-theists, and we're all three shaking our heads about what a crazy world we're living in with postmodernism. <laughs> I have an infinitely more respect for a non-theist who will own up to the ramifications of atheism. Honestly, I don't agree, and in fact, I, I'm 180 degrees opposite of that, but I have far more respect for someone who's a pure Darwinian atheist than for the sappy, foolish idea that we have in the 21st century that God's not really part of our world and we can make up our purpose. Well, enough time wasted there. Let's, let's ask the question, because I'm going to assume that many of you say, well, okay, I really do believe in God, and I want to believe in God, and I believe that God has my purpose in store for me. How does a physical person living in the natural realm find out from an infinite person in the supernatural realm what purpose is? How do we know? Well, there's a whole lot in the Bible I could share with you, but I want to pull one verse out of the Bible to tell you about the most important thing that you need to link with God in order to find out what your purpose is. Here's the verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the 7th verse, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. The Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. Now I know instantly my secular friends, my secularist friends, my naturalist friends, my materialist friends, my non-theist friends are going to roll their eyes and say, I knew you were going to say it. Faith, you Christians, you're in la-la land. You like believe stuff that isn't true. You like believe in fairy tales. That's not faith. See, I'd be the first one to say, if, if what you're talking about is trying to make it up and believe it because you want it to be true, I'd be the first to say, I have no use for that kind of thing. In the Bible, biblical faith is always different from natural faith. See if I can explain what I mean by this. All of us have natural faith. Um, I have faith in mathematics. We were talking about changing the service times. I sat in numbers of meetings and looked at attendance patterns here at New Spring. First thing I said to the rest of the senior team, numbers don't lie. I have faith in mathematics. That kind of faith ain't going to get me into heaven, but I have faith in mathematics. Um, you have faith in your chair when you came in. If you're in the North Auditorium, South Auditorium, um, you, you believed it was going to hold you up. You didn't like look at it and get underneath it and check it out and test it. You had faith when you sat down. You said, I think this thing will hold me up. That's natural faith. Not the kind of faith the Bible's talking about, but you and I have it. 
And beyond that, I have faith in things that are not necessarily completely certain. I, I have faith that when I go get in my car and I push the button, it's going to start. Maybe it won't, but I have faith that it will. So that's faith, but it's not biblical faith. Here is what you must understand about biblical faith when the Bible talks about it. It is faith or belief in God's word. God's word involves his character, his revelation, what he has to say, his personhood. When God speaks, or, or we have God's word, and I believe in it, that is faith. So here's what we're going to do today for just a few moments. We're going to talk about how that biblical faith is your linkage to find out what your purpose is and how important, how powerful it is. Let me say this, because... Every once in a while, people will approach me and they'll say, Mark, I don't think I have very strong faith. Well, okay, I don't think I do either. But remember this, the, challenge, the strength of faith is not in what you can gin up. The strength of your faith is in the strength of its object. So consequently, whatever happens in your life won't be due to the strength of your faith. It'll be the strength of your God. If you have an electronic device that you have to plug into an outlet, well, of course, that capability for that item to function is there, but not until you plug it in. And at that moment, the strength is in the electricity that comes through the outlet. So that's what happens when it comes down to faith. The important thing is not the strength of your faith. It's the power of the object of your faith. Okay, let's talk about faith. There is a, a faith chapter in the Bible. And by the way, we're only going to look at like two or three verses here. So this is your homework. Read this whole chapter sometime today when you get a chance. Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter of the Bible. If you have a New Spring Bible, this is on page 971, okay? Because right out of the box, the Bible defines faith. You ready? Here we go. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, throughout Scripture, we learn that that's the one thing that God responds to. God responds to faith. He responded to Abraham's faith. He responded to David's faith. When Jesus was on the earth, he was always looking for faith. In fact, here's what the Bible says. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Hey, I want to go to heaven when I die. How am I going to heaven? Am I going to go to heaven because I joined a New Spring Church? It's a great church. I love it like I love my life. But New Spring Church can't get you out of, heaven when, uh, out of Sedgwick County when you die. Baptism, we believe in it. If you've accepted Jesus, you need to go public with your faith. But Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. How are you going to heaven? Well, I'm a nice person. Oh, yeah? Really? I think I'm a pretty good person. I'll tell you what. If, you, if someone could take our entire life and put it on the screen up here, everything we ever did, everything we ever thought about, everything we wanted to do, we would have done, we didn't get arrested. I mean, if somebody could put all our life on that screen, we would run out of this room. Nah. You and I are not going to heaven because we're good people. Forget that. The Bible says it is by grace, that's God giving us what we don't deserve, that we are saved through faith. We uh, have a funeral on Tuesday for a new springer. He was diagnosed with cancer, and three weeks after his diagnosis, he, he, he passed last Monday morning. But on Sunday afternoon, right after the services, Mary Alice and I went to the hospital and we were talking to his wife, and, and he had told her, he said, I'm ready to go see Jesus. And he was talking about it, you know, what he would say to her parents when he saw her parents there. And I, What is it that allows someone to know, you know what, this may be the day of my death, but I'm going to see Jesus. Faith. See, here's the thing. 
The problem that our culture has with faith is the idea that faith is like believing in la-la land. It is believing in the unknown. It is wanting something to happen so much that you make it up. But faith is not seeing something that's not there. I don't have any use for that. It is seeing past the wall. It is seeing through the wall. Faith is not the absence of vision. It's x-ray vision. Someone will tell me, well, if I can't believe it, I won't see it. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? To say that nothing exists that doesn't filter through my five senses. (laughs) Beside being quintessentially narcissistic, it is beyond belief in regard to being naive. Nothing exists that I don't see. No, the Bible tells us that it is by faith that we are saved. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible just says, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's how big faith is. Faith is your linkage to God to discover your purpose. You can either try to make up your purpose or have God hand it down. Okay, for just a few moments, let's unpack those two huge statements. It's the substance of things that we have confidence are going to happen, and it's the evidence of what we can't see. First of all, let's take the first one. It is the substance of things we are confident in. You know, your Old Testament was written in Hebrew. I think you do know none of it was written in English, right? <laughs> the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek. So there are people who've spent their whole lives in scholarship studying Hebrew, studying ancient Hebrew, and also especially studying Greek since the New Testament's in Greek. Two of the greatest Greek scholars of all time looked at this statement, the substance of things we are confident in, and they said, here's what it means. It means you have a full set of documents. In other words, God is saying, look, I've made you promises, but the moment that you have faith, you have a full set of documents that what you believe in regard to God's word is going to happen. Why is it important to have a set of documents? Now, this goes back a long time ago. We, we bought this land in 1995. But if you've ever heard me tell the story, you know that we went through all kinds of grief trying to find land out along K96. I mean, we got our heart broken so many times. Thought we had land, didn't have it. Thought we had some of this land, didn't have it. But finally, God did a miracle. We were able to get this 40 acres right on the corner of K96 and 21st Street. I was terrified that something was going to fall through in the deal all the time that we were waiting 45 days for the title search and EPA study. But I'll never forget, I believe it was in July of 1995, I went to the title office to finalize the land that we were going to have. And I still remember that moment. I walked in, took my seat on the right side of the title agent. The title agent was sitting here. The seller came in. He was sitting over here. When I walked in, all the papers were in the seller stack. I had no papers in my stack. And then the signing began. Boy, I'll tell you, if you ever buy commercial real estate, it's not like buying a house. I mean, a lot of papers. He would sign. Title agent would take it, pass it over to me. I would sign. After a few minutes, I had a few papers in my stack. There was a point where I had half the papers in my stack. But I'll never forget the feeling when I had all the papers in my stack. You say, Mark, why was that big? Because we could go forward. I mean, this was nothing but a milo field that day. And until the land was ours, we really couldn't begin to move forward and build the campus that you're sitting on today. But when all the papers were in my stack, I had the documents. And you know what? Nobody could hassle me at that point because we had the documents. And that is what God is saying to you. 
God's made you a lot of promises. He's made you the promise that you're never going to die. He's made you the promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's made you the promise that everything that happens in your life, God can work in it and turn it for good. Okay, maybe you haven't seen that yet, but you got the documents. You have all the documents. You can move forward and get on with your life. Hey, how would you live your life if you knew you couldn't die? I mean, that's why the apostles, I mean, they used to threaten them with death, and they're like, well, do what you have to do. I mean, when you've seen a man come out of the grave, it's kind of hard to scare that guy. I mean, how would you live your life if you knew you couldn't fail? How would you live your life if you knew that God would always love you no matter what? How would you live your life if you knew that all of heaven belongs to you? Hey, I would, you know what? You can start taking risks at that point, healthy risks, because you got the documents, okay? Let's go to the second one. The second statement that we see in faith is that it is the evidence of things that we have not seen. Well, we talked about this a moment ago. There's a seen world and there's an unseen world, isn't there? And some of you are still chewing on that. And you say, well, I don't care what you say, Mark. I still believe if I, if I can't see it, I won't believe it. All right, all right. I get it. <laughs> you know what the truth of the matter is? I can't see you today. I see the body you live in, but I can't see you. The real you is invisible, it's spirit. I mean, if you went to your doctor today and you said to her, I think I need a personality transplant, she would say, you need something, all right. And I'll give you a prescription for it. You need to take it every day. You say, oh, now, Mark, you just, you just haven't been to, you haven't been to microbiology with me because if you, if, if you had been, you would understand that these are like brain impulses. No, 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 no. Your brain is an organ. Your mind is you. Your brain is an organ that your mind uses. No. You're invisible. You're a spirit. You're not a body that has a spirit. You're a spirit that has a body. And thankfully, someday we'll have a new body because if you're old enough like me, you're starting to notice this house is not what it used to be. Shingles are getting thin and the windows don't shut right. Right? Okay. We live in an unseen world. There's stuff we can see, there's stuff we can't see. According to the word of God, God is here. I remember one weekend at New Spring, we had a rock legend here. I mean, one of the greatest rock legends of all time. Man, I remember the day I got my driver's license when I was 16. I turned on my car, first song that was on my radio was one of his songs. He was here at New Spring. I was like, did you see who was at New Spring this week? Hey, I, I was glad he was here. I was impressed he was here too. But do you realize the God of all creation is here? I mean, the God who wrote the code for DNA, the Holy Spirit, is here with us here today. I mean, you can go home and say, do you know who was at New Spring today? <laughs> and beyond that, the Bible tells us we're surrounded by the angels of God who protect his people. I mean, there's a seen world and there's an unseen world. Okay, what is faith? Faith says, okay, I have evidence of what I can't see. You know, there's so much crazy stuff about faith. I mean, it, from the anti-God world, there's the idea that faith is just pretending that you've made something up and believing it anyway. And we get hit with that. And then we get hit from some of the crazy stuff that you hear in some churches and on tele, you know, television where people that claim to be God followers are making up all this crazy stuff that say you can just believe God for anything and he'll do it. Well, that's crazy too. What is faith? 
Because I really do believe all of us want to, we want to link with God. And we want to experience not only the presence of God and all of his promises, but we want to discover what our purpose is. Okay? This is as simple as a preschool addition problem. So this is going to be accessible to all of us. Here is faith. Just think of it like an addition problem. God's promise plus I believe equals faith. God's promise, I believe, equals faith. Now, here's the thing. When you go back into that mathematics problem, if you take out either one of those components, you don't have faith. Let's just say God hasn't made a promise, but we believe it. Like, I, like I, I, you know, I believe God is going to give me a million dollars. Well, God hadn't promised to give me a million dollars. That's not faith. Now, I can believe in God's power, and I can believe in God's love for me. I can say, I believe that God is going to fix my marriage. Well, it's important to pray in faith, knowing God's power, but God hasn't necessarily promised that. I believe that God is going to heal me. Well, I believe he can heal me. But at the end of the day, you do understand that none of us is going to leave life without being ill or injured and sick. I mean, everybody gets sick ultimately, and they don't get healed. See, this is what happens. This is the reason why so many of us have thrown faith down and say, well, it doesn't work. It's because we've heard crazy stuff. The idea that you can just make up anything you want and believe God for it, you can have it. No, you've you got to have God's promise. Or you can take out the I believe part. And God has a promise, but we don't believe it. God is like, well, you know what? I love you so much. I sent my son into the world. He ran the table for 33 years and never sinned. And he died on a cross for you. And then he rose from the grave. And if you will just by faith ask him to be your savior, I'll give you a gift. I have God's promise on that one. That can't be that simple. My church teaches. Blows it up, doesn't it? But when you have God's promise, and I believe then you have a powerful linkage between you and God, and that is where your purpose starts. Do you know how powerful the word of God is? He spoke the world into existence. When Mark, frail, flawed, foolish, ignorant, with emotional disorder, anxiety disorder, when Mark, with all of his weakness, links up with the word of God that called the world into existence. The power that is now in my life is not of me anymore. God's word has come into my life. And suddenly, I have the substance. I have the documents of things that I've hoped for. And I have the evidence that God is doing things that I can't see. And at that moment, you know what? My life changes incredibly. <laughs> my life is almost like a firework that goes up and, and, and just turns in beauty into the sky because Mark is linked up with the word of God. <laughs> Faith is not pretending to see what's not there. It's seeing through walls. You know, the thing of it is, no matter who you are here today, you're going to come up against walls. You could be here today and say, Mark, I'm a non-theist, but I don't believe any of this, but here's the deal. Non-theist or Christ follower, you're going to come up to walls we had a funeral for a nine-year-old, sweet little nine-year-old girl, precious nine-year-old girl. I must have done over a 1,000 funerals, but I'll tell you, the hardest thing for me is when you leave that cemetery at the end of the service, and you're sort of like, what now? A wall. Some of you will have a wall that you'll come to with a relationship, and it's like, well, I thought he was going to love me forever, but 
He's walked out. There's a wall. Or I've been to the doctor and, and I've gotten a prognosis or I'm waiting on a biopsy and it doesn't sound good and it's like a wall. Or I have an emotional disorder and I don't feel well and when I'm in the throes of this emotional disorder, I'm not myself. There's a wall. You know what? It would be denial to pretend that wall isn't there. But faith lets you see through that wall that God has made you promises he won't break and that he's doing things that you can't see. And when you live life on those terms, it's just purpose. It's purpose. And it all begins with a relationship, a free relationship. But God has said, I'm making you a promise right now. If you will accept my son Jesus Christ into your life by faith, God is saying, I will make you my daughter. I will make you my son. I will forgive you of your sins. I will give you everlasting life, and I will give you a life of purpose. Would you be open to that? Would you be open to praying a prayer? Hey, I want to pray it slowly, and, and you can decide whether you want to pray it with me, but I, I want you to decide whether you want to own the lines and talk to God. Okay, would you pray with me, please? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner but I believe you love me anyway. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. I believe you have a plan for my life. I want to discover it. Thank you for forgiving me. I accept Jesus as my living Savior. In his name I pray, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, you can take your Talk To Us card, go to any info center and say, I prayed with Mark. You'll get a gift bag that's got a Bible just like I preach from, a book I wrote, and some helpful stuff. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.